This is Voice It. This podcast is all about showcasing talented people in the Clare Valley and the mid-north of South Australia who've built up businesses from scratch and have turned them into success stories. I'm Annabelle Homer. Well, we were technically broke without going bankrupt. Um, you know, it was tough. I couldn't... We owed a lot of money to ATO, super, um, suppliers, and we got through that, though, which I was very proud of. We just grew too quickly and did a lot of um, projects what I had involvement in, so I thought you could first rule of business and many people do it. I thought I could use my resource to build our asset base and that failed dismally. Sam McDonald. I'd never met him before this interview, but I had heard a lot about him. Most people in the Clare Valley would know Sam as the owner of SJM, the largest construction company in the mid-north of South Australia. He wanted to bail on this interview, not wanting to be in the spotlight, but I'm so glad he went ahead with it as his story featuring highs and lows of his career was captivating. A nine-time award-winning company, SJM employs 22 people working on more than 200 new homes, renovation and commercial projects in the Mid-North. SJM is one of SA's leading regional builders. Many people would also know Sam after the devastating loss he and his family faced a few years ago when his eldest son Cade passed away. But today, it's all about Sam. About the struggles in the early days, about the time he walked away from the opportunity to be a professional rugby player, and about his passion for sustainable building design. How did he get to where he is today? We need to go back to the beginning. Sam's life began in Melbourne. For 12 years, he grew up in Baronia, in the foothills of the Dandenong Ranges with his mum and three younger brothers. During the late 1970s, his father left when he was only eight years old, which made him grow up very quickly. His mother worked night shift a lot, which meant he had to step up and cook dinner for the rest of his family and care for his younger disabled brother, Hamish, who has cerebral palsy. Hamish is an inspiration to Sam. You may or may not know, but Hamish is now considered one of Australia's most respected Paralympians, a gold medalist, a shopfoot world record holder. He worked for the UN, has an OAM, and now works for the Australian Institute of Sport as a coach, and later this year, he's off to the Tokyo Olympics. This interview begins at a time when life for Sam and the rest of his family was pretty tough. But then it all changed. Fortunately, Mum met an amazing man who, uh, when I was 11 or 12, he had a great job in education in the Northern Territory, in Alice Springs. He's 10 years older than Mum, so he basically took Mum on with four boys, a dog and a cat, and we were literally, literally sleeping on the floor in Melbourne, took us and set us a new life up in Alice Springs, and that was in 86. And look, if it wasn't for him... I think we would have, I wouldn't be here today. And so why were you literally on the floor? Why were you? Oh, sleeping? Mum just had to sell everything. Just you know, we were we were getting Christmas presents from the school. We weren't destitute. Mum was still working, but I'm you know I think in in those early eighties when interest rates were terrible and and blah blah blah, 
Um, yeah, no, we weren't destitute. It was just not not poverty. Uh, it was just just memories that you had. Times, yeah. just times Time, were tough. Times, and yeah. he came along at the right time. He did. Mum had great friends. Obviously, she was involved in the primary school that we went to, and I think well, I know there was one of the teachers there that she's we're still very close friends with. Set them up on a blind date. So that was cool. I mean, and yeah, Melbourne to Alice Springs in '86. Wow. That was a shock to the system. <laughs> I, I remember uh, probably six months in, I wanted to go back to Melbourne, right or wrong. Uh, so I packed my bag, rode my push bike down to the railway line, the GAN, and I was going to put my bike across the railway line to slow the train down enough that I could sprint and jump in one of the carriages and then get my... <laughs> Sounds like a movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, at, I, and, I, and I got there, I, I, the train was coming, I could see the light, and I... Turned around and rode home. <laughs> chickened out. Chickened out. Yeah, chickened out. So let's fast forward to the next stage in your life, high school, which led you down to the path of a trade. What what attracted you to the trade industry? Uh, look, to be honest, nothing. Nothing. I, I wasn't. I wanted to be a school teacher. Right. And um, I got past year twelve uh, with enough points to to be a school teacher, but. My strong mother basically told me that I was going to be a, a carpenter. Why? Oh, look, I was always doing stuff with my hands, um, building stuff, cubbies, blah, 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 uh, Lego. Look, she was right. <laughs> so why did you want to be a school teacher? What uh, I, just liked the, I just liked the idea. I wanted to be a phys ed teacher. Um, I liked the idea of staying fit to, to then teach. Like, you know, just, it just made sense. I worked in a sports store at the time. So I was just li- I just liked that idea. So you um, got an apprenticeship at eighteen. Is got that- an apprenticeship at eighteen. Yeah, through the master builders in the Northern Territory. They had a structure where they had one government based site that they had one foreman looking after up to twenty guys from various age groups, from year one apprentices to year four apprentices, and then from that government based site, private contractors would come in and select apprentices mm-hmm. and then be subcontracted out from the government from there. So we'd all go to trade school still, but from that base we'd then um, be selected to go and work for companies, one-man bands, big companies, what have you. Yep. So it was quite a competitive environment, you know, because you didn't want to be left back on that government site. You wanted to be out on with the contractors. So where does the professional rugby career I, I come in? I don't know where you got that from. So that isn't even true. I played rugby, but you weren't didn't wasn't a professional. No, rugby union was amateur. When I um, basically gave it away, it was turning professional. So the year of um, rugby turning professional, I was going to go to Sydney and follow my dreams. I was, I was asked to go down and play mm. at um, East's Rugby Club, and I. Drove, I had a season in Darwin, drove back to Alice, grabbed my gear, went via Mildura to um, help my cousin, who's a carpenter, for a couple of weeks. I had sort of three weeks to get to Sydney before training. And look, to be honest, I, I got to Mildura and I bumped into my wife, who was my wife. I hadn't met her before and I stayed in Mildura. So you didn't make it? No. No, I represented the Northern Territory um, many times, captain them. I had a ball, had, had a great, you know, played against 
Japan, Papua New Guinea, Queensland, Ireland. Um, had a great time. Wow. I love how you say, where did you get the idea that I was a professional rugby player? But you kind of were. I think oh, you're downplaying well, yeah. it a little well, bit. It just sounds funny because rugby union at the time wasn't professional. Okay. Whereas, you know, there was lots of opportunities. So you got to Mildura, you met your future wife mm-hmm. and then decided, I think I'll just stay here and not go and continue my rugby career. Yeah, I remember ringing the president and at the time his son was playing for the Wallabies, so he was a big deal. What was his name? Bob Wilson. David Wilson was his son. And he said, I rang him, he said, look, Bob, can I be another couple of days? I'm just sort of, I lied a bit and I said, I'm stuck here in Mildura. And he basically said, listen, we get a lot of this from your country, bumpkins, pretty much. Uh, Look, if you're not here in 24 hours, we're not taking you seriously. So, and that was enough for me. I said, I don't really have the passion or the, it was just enough. He said enough for me to realise that, this is not really what I want to do. So I stayed in Algeria. I was thinking either the girl was just too good to be true or you didn't really have the passion for rugby, one or the yeah, other. Yeah, prob- probably a bit of both, yeah, at the time. <laughs> sure. <laughs> You're in Mildura as a building subcontractor? Yeah. So how long were you in Mildura before you moved to Clare? Five years. So what made you move to Clare? Uh, my parents were semi-retiring down here and they wanted to build a mud brick home. And they just couldn't find a builder that was interested in doing it. So we had a chat and I said, sure, I'll two weeks on, one week off sort of scenario. <clears throat> we were renovating a home in Mildura at the time and we'd just had our first son. So it was busy. I basically travelled in a 1979 720 Datsun Ute trailing about a tonne of trailer every um, fortnight doing 450Ks or 900Ks return, building their house. How long did you do that for? It was a year. And just fell in love with the place, like, you know, coming through via Morgan, coming over the hills into Burra and and, oh, just, and the big trees. Big trees were really probably what stapled my thoughts of... That is a good stretch of road, though. Where I love it. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah, I love it. Whilst I was building Mum and Horry's house, you know, he'd spend time in the pub, because the family's back in Pilchura, and talk to people and, you know, I still call it networking and pubs are a very good place for that. You know, you, you understood what the local economy was about, who's doing what, and you got all the gossip and the details of Clare and Surrounds and, um, you know, started involving myself in sporting clubs just whilst I was here. And that evolved to the idea that I've really got to move across here and um, start building because... Love the climate, love the the geographical set out where it is. Just beautiful. Fell in love with it. And and Meg was committed to come over too. So were there any other builders in Clare at the time? Yeah, there were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. there was there was um there was a few, but the, and and I know these guys now, you know, without any dis disrespect, it was the comment was, Oh, there's no one you know, Shivers, you're twenty six and you can build a house. I was like, Yeah. And that was a bit sort of I was thought I'd found a place that had never understood that you can be young and still operate. So just thought, well, this is a place to be. Uh, there's opportunities here. Yeah, no, I, I did some subcontract work to start with just to get a shoe in uh, and then, then it goes building licence from their first employee. So you mentioned the mud brick home. Mm-hmm. Did that ignite 
the idea or the passion within you that you wanted to go down the track of a sustainable building design? Definitely, yeah. I mean, in the building industry, there is so much wastage anyway in regards to packaging of goods. The, the energy involved to construct, to, to build a home is huge. And then the energy to run a home is, is big as well. So, I mean, I think if we can, it's our responsibility, if we can alert people to how important orientation is, simple things that don't cost money in design is important for people to understand that, that you can actually save a few energy costs and ever so gently save the planet. But Most of the work that you do or nearly at every single development level is based around sustainable design? Unfortunately not. Um, You know, we do commercial jobs now that is tended off a a full architectural spec. So there's there's elements of um, energy efficiency in those specifications, but it's not, you know, ideally it'd be great to be fully recyclable and and stuff like that. But, you know, we employ 22 people too and, and the marketplace just isn't there for us to be able to afford to do that. Has, have you ever built anything that's fully recyclable? No. And no. is that the aim? Uh, yeah, I think one day. We recycle as much as we can. Uh, when we demolish homes and things like that, we recycle as much material, either recycle for cash or recycle to upcycle to, to put into the new project. I mean, one one project in particular that's that's fresh to mind is the the new rooftop bar uh, on the main street. We recycled everything out of that, pretty much, uh, right. apart from the grid the old grid ceiling and the old cabinets that the bank installed over the years. But so all the framing timber we reused, all the demolition brickwork we reused, the things that you, you actually were physically able to recycle, everything else went into recycling areas for cash but but mainly we upcycled the the framework and the bricks some doors and some door hardware you know things that would normally just be thrown in the bin well you mentioned you do a variety of different builds commercial residential some sustainable some not what is your career highlight there's probably there's probably three first renovation in Mildura we bought on the wrong side of town and sold for a record price in five years um, that was awesome. People still know that house. It's an iconic home. Why? Why is it iconic? Just because it 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 set the scene for the eastern side of Deacon Avenue, <laughs> uh, which, which what the best good. house on the worst street? Oh, it was or? just yeah, yeah. It was a it was an old cottage, terracey type of home. But yeah, it's it's still in exactly the same position as it was twenty years ago. Mm. That was my first favourite. Second favourite is the recent home, family home that we've sold now, um, which was just a beautiful, beautiful project. That had a lot of recycled items in it too. And the most recent favourite is definitely um, the rooftop bar seed on the main street. What have been the major challenges throughout your career? Oh, look, staffing. Staffing is, is an ongoing challenge. Yet I say that, but now we've got a fantastic team. Um, How many have you got working for you now? We've got 22 employees. Since 2001 you've built up to 22? Uh, no, we've, we've fluctuated. We've gone up to 26. But in saying that, you know, when we were at 26 we, we nearly went broke. So well, we were technically broke without going bankrupt. Um, you know, it was tough. I couldn't – we owed a lot of money to 
ATOs, super um, suppliers, and we got through that though, which I was very proud of. And so when was that? That was two thousand and six. Mm. Uh, it was a while ago. Mm. We just grew too quickly, and did a lot of um, projects what I had involvement in. So I thought you could first rule of business, and many people do it. I thought I could use my resource to build our asset base, and that failed dismally. Guess you always learn the hard way, don't you? Yeah, and and credit to our suppliers and local traders and things like you know I was talking to them, saying, "Hey guys, look, we can get out of this, and appreciate another thirty days," and and that came back in spades. Um, have you ever done a job where you've got halfway through and thought, "Oh man, I don't know if this is going to work." Yeah. <laughs> How many times does that happen? <laughs> uh, not too many, thankfully. It's usually that thought process is usually around shivers. We've forgotten this major element in here, what's happened. Oh, really? Yeah. Like what? Oh, look, you know, when you're quoting major a job. <laughs> yeah, when you're quoting a job, you might have left out all the structural beams or, or something like that and you go to buy them and you go, oh, shivers, I haven't. That's happened a couple of times. And then you have to go walk back to the client. No, so no, gonna, you have to wear it. You have to wear it. Yeah, if it's documented, you have to wear it. Yeah, I mean, I can't. You can't go. I can't go back to the client and say, "Hey, look, it's my fault. I've left out these beams on our tender. Do you mind if I charge you an extra thirty grand?" <laughs> That's no. Oh, you, you can't be, do that. Did you feel sick when? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. That's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's. And that hasn't happened that often. No, no. That that happened when um, I was trying to do everything mm. and not not be wise enough to um, you know employ people to then look at, look at those sort of elements. I did I did some business coaching with Dave Hinges, which I still reflect on to this day. We did a few three or four half a dozen uh, sessions, uh, and he was great. So he he steered you in a different direction. Is that how? Just in a systematic programmable direction for someone who's generally a bit creative that's hard to do you said the business grew really fast too fast up to 2006 so that's when you got into a bit of trouble and then you've been able to maneuver your way into now 22 staff and and quite a large company yeah did you ever imagine it to be at this scale not really i think it just sort of it grew and it, it grew because we grew we grew as a company we grew as a brand it was. It's a great feeling to employ people and train them and watch them grow and have ownership of, ultimately, our company. Yeah, I'm the director, but it's it's a it's a company shared by lots of people with lots of ownership. That gets quite infectious. So you know, you're training, training an apprentice up, and after four years or five years, they'll they'll leave and go on, on their own adventures and interests. Or you'll train an apprentice up and, and he becomes one of your, your, your major supervisors. I mean, and that that is just so cool. You know, we, we spend 90% of our life working. So why don't you make it comfortable? Why don't we make it good? I worked for some, for some real shitty bosses over the years and that's one thing that I've, I've learnt is, you know, if you don't have employees, you don't have a business. So what makes up a shitty boss? Oh goodness! <laughs> Attitude, um, mean, greedy. <laughs> yeah, yep, yeah. Just no respect for you as a person, uh, for what you do, and no communication. And, and look, in I have fallen down those 
paths of no communication over the years and we have performance reviews like most companies do and I was sitting with one of my supervisors at the time and I asked him, was there any improvements that I could make? And he was prepared and it was bloody awesome. Uh, it was one of my favourite interviews and uh, so I learned so much off this guy and he, he's a very good supervisor as well. He taught me, that, Sam, even though you're, you've had a bad phone call or whatever that has nothing to do with us, can you just smile and say hello? It was great. It was just, just, what, just what I needed. How much has the building industry changed since the, those early days in the Territory to now? The, the obvious ones are we'd be digging footings by hand. Really? Yeah. I mean, the soil type was a bit different, but even in Mildura, we were digging footings by hand. Why were you digging them by hand? You didn't have the machinery that... Yeah, the guy we worked for, dug them by hand, so that's what we did. <laughs> was that standard practice across the board, or was back that... Back then, back then it was. Wow, okay. Yeah, and, and we used a hammer a lot more than what's getting used these days. But, look, it's become a safer, better environment, I believe, the building or the construction industry now, which is good which is really good. There, there, there's better technology in scaffold, in, in scissor lifts, in you know, boom cranes and things like that, and machinery, ultimately. Uh, that's great. That's really good. Over your career, has there been many workplace accidents? At SJM, we've or had minor accidents. Minor accidents. What yeah. about before then? Say back in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, look, I wasn't on the site, but yeah, I, look, I'd, yeah, we'd heard about I'd never seen that I can recall any major incidents, but you heard a lot about them. Um, you know, there were deaths on sites, um, and but they're just unsafe practice and, you know, just being silly. Well, since COVID, have you got a waiting list? Because we've heard about, you know, there's a shortage of materials. People have been wanting to renovate and build their own homes and they can't because there's a shortage of um, of timber, etc. Yeah, timber products are, mm. are, are, it's scary, basically. So, yes, there is a waiting list. Yep. How big is the waiting list? Oh, look, it's it's big. It'll be at least six months until we see some sort of light. They were talking Christmas that they'll catch up. I think it'll be it'll be longer than that. And is this timber supply shortage due to what's happening in China, or where's, where's yeah, the issue? Yeah, international has been one of the issues. COVID shutdown has been another. Um, so production in Australia just you know stopped. I, I, I saw some numbers the other day. One of the councils or state governments were expecting 30% growth in in home applications, building applications, and they reported it was nine times that. Wow. <laughs> so with with shutdown of production and overseas interest, you know, and then we go into growth, exponential growth. So with that, there's a follow-on. Steel pricing goes up, you know, supply and demand. So... I hope, I hope not, but that, but all that grant money and, and all those sorts of things might get phoned away pretty quickly with the, the price increases on, on product, mm. lack of, of availability. What's the next step for you, Sam McDonald? Where, where do you <laughs> see yourself in 10 years' time? 10 years' time. Oh, 10 years' time I'd like to be doing projects uh, for me, yep, just or within 10 years, personal projects, yeah, which at the moment are hamstrung, obviously, by... My business. So when you say personal projects, I mean building your own house again or... Something like that, you know, a personal interest project. So where I'm the client. I mean, we're building our new shedding over the road here, uh, which ultimately the company's the client. But, yeah, I don't know, just, just basically take a step back, 
and <laughs> just do something yeah. for yourself. Yeah, you know, I just try and work in five year brackets. You know, how involved has your family been in the business? Um, <clears throat> well, when we first started, we decided that uh, I had my career, and uh, Meg had hers. Meg's a nurse, so yeah. I mean, of course, you know, families. In, when you when you're in business, um, you're ultimately all riding the roller coaster anyway, mm. um, and with the highs and lows, uh, there were a few. Yeah, so yeah, well, looking up, I was always told I was married to SJM, so <laughs> which I probably still am. Well, that pretty much is a wrap, Sam. And I appreciate you spending the time. Um, to talk to me today and to actually meet you. I've never met you, but I've heard so much about you and it was so lovely to hear your story. So thank you very much. Thanks, Annabelle. Nice to meet you. Cheers. I'm glad I finally got to meet Sam. He's down to worth, easily likeable, and I reckon as a boss, he'd be firm but fair. It will be interesting to see what Sam and his team at SJM will achieve over the next 10 years. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it among your friends, follow the podcast, and I wouldn't mind a rating or a review if you've got a spare five minutes. To find out more about my little business, Voice It, head to my website, voiceit.me, or check out my socials. Catch you soon with another episode featuring another talent from the Mid-North who's turned their small business into a success story.